Hello, and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. Today, we're going to be focusing on an aspect of mindfulness practice that represents one of the most important skills we can learn. First, how we can become more aware of all the parts of our experience without being overly captured by any one of them. And then second, how we can work with those parts more skillfully. To help us learn how to do that, I'm joined by two guests. First, as usual, clinical psychologist, Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Forrest. Thank you. And really looking forward to this topic and our guest today. Today, we're very happy to also be joined by Dr. Danny Penman. So, Danny is a meditation teacher, an award-winning writer and journalist, and the co-author of the classic Mindfulness with Oxford professor Dr. Mark Williams. Dr. Williams was one of the original creators of Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy, or MBCT, alongside John Teasdale and Zindel Siegel. And Danny's work with Mark shared the insights from MBCT with a wide audience. And in 2014, Danny won the British Medical Association's Best Book Award for You Are Not Your Pain. And now Mark and Danny have collaborated again with their newest book, Deeper Mindfulness, The New Way to Rediscover Calm in a Chaotic World. And if you're watching this, I have a copy of it right here. So Danny, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. And it's really great that you've, uh, you've got me on your program. I was so excited to have you here. This is awesome. I'll enter into my first question here by reading my endorsement of your book. This brilliant, powerful, and important book offers a resilient inner peace for troubled times. Each moment is a tipping point toward happiness or suffering. The key is to experience life's pleasures and pains without getting hijacked by them, and the authors show us how. Their evidence-based approach is both simple and profound, structured and spacious and practical and heartfelt. So uh, we're going to be sharing some of the value of all that with our listeners uh, today. Just to start kind of briefly, Danny, how did you get into mindfulness yourself and how did you and Mark start working together? Well, it's a long and uh, very painful story. I used to love paragliding. It was the absolute um, center of my life. And then one day, I was about only about 70 or 80 feet above these hills in southern England called the Cotswolds. And I was flying along. I was suddenly hit by the most enormous downdraft and my canopy collapsed, totally imploded. And I tumbled head over heels towards the hillside, managed to reinflate it, but then it collapsed again. And I fell about 30 feet into the hillside. And luckily, I landed on my feet. But unluckily, the, the lower half of my right leg was driven through the knee and into my thigh. So this was an absolutely awful injury. And I was lying there on the hillside. And I actually, for a moment, thought, well, this is it, because I just couldn't feel my body at all. I, I was trying to breathe. I could not breathe. And I just thought, well, maybe, maybe this is it. And in that moment, I remembered a form of meditation that I'd learned when I was about 15 or 16 years old in school. And we've been taught this as a means of stress relief. And I'd used it over the years to deal with the usual stresses and strains of daily life. And in sheer desperation, I, I tried to use this meditation. It was a very 
simple breathing meditation. And you know, so I focused on my breath, which at that moment I just could not breathe. And I just somehow managed to relax and I just took the most enormous breath. And it was yeah, the, the, the most wonderful one I've ever taken in my life. Perhaps <laughs> the second most wonderful one after I was born. Then I was struck by the most unimaginable pain. Strangely, I found out a relief for a nanosecond because it meant, you know, I was alive and I hadn't broken my neck or my back. And I carried on with this very simple breathing meditation just to try and gain control or live with the pain whilst I managed to call the emergency services from, from my phone. Eventually, the ambulance arrived. Uh, they took me to hospital. This was the start of quite a harrowing journey because I spent about a month in hospital. I had what's known as a Taylor spatial frame fitted to my leg, and this consisted of a series of concentric titanium rings around the outside of my leg. And this allowed the surgeons to kind of align all of the bones in my leg so they could heal. Amazingly, they, they told me this would take, I would have this on my leg for about two years, 20 months, they said. And I thought, this is not going to be a pleasant journey because <laughs> I was in constant pain. But I started to use this meditation, very simple breathing meditation, and also another one that I'd learned, a visualization meditation. That, And I found these meditations, especially the breathing meditation, incredibly good for, for pain relief mm. and also for helping me cope with the, the stress and the anxiety and you know extreme unhappiness that I felt. And my healing accelerated dramatically. And as you can imagine, I had a lot of time on my hands and because I, I just simply couldn't walk. I couldn't do anything at all, really. So by chance, I came across very small art article one day, 100 words or so, about this remarkable work that had been done on using meditation for the relief of uh, depression at Oxford University in the UK. And it was by Professor Mark Williams. And he had taken mindfulness and turned it into this treatment that you know lots of academic studies had just begun to show was highly effective for the release of relief of depression and also anxiety and stress. And it was known as mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. And I thought, this is fascinating. I have been using one of these meditations that was in the book. Huh. On your own. Yeah. I became completely fascinated by it and contacted Mark. Now, this was about 2006 or 2007. So I could not get any newspaper at all at this stage. I was a journalist at the time. I could not get any single newspaper, even my own, even the slightest interest in mindfulness. You know, it was all just this really weird, fluffy stuff. It was up there with waving crystals around. I did my best. Eventually, I got one small article in a paper. And in a sense, I never stopped writing. You know, eventually I persuaded Mark. I said, look, we have got to take this amazing academic work take it to the widest audience possible. Turned into a bestseller. It did. It did indeed. What a journey. I'm just imagining human to human, Danny. You know, I do, I've done a lot of rock climbing over the years. I've avoided hang gliding, you know, parasailing, skydiving, blah, blah. Because <laughs> yeah. to me, it just seems so at the mercy of powerful <laughs> forces 
uh, you know, you're exhibit A of that. I, I hope you've physically recovered from that event. Yeah, I have. I mean, uh, remarkably, I had the, the frame removed after five months rather than 20 or 24. Do you think your mindfulness practice, literally, you know, psychoneuroimmunology interacted with your healing and accelerated it? I don't see it as accelerating the healing. I see it as the body being released to heal itself at its, the rate it would want to do if we weren't so stressed and anxious all the time. Right. Because I think the body has this tremendous capacity to heal, but we get in its way. Yeah. So in this new book, Danny, because Deeper Mindfulness lays out an eight-week program for people, which is focused on specific topics, what did you want to highlight that you felt hadn't been captured by the first book? In any eight-week course, whether it's mindfulness-based cognitive therapy or MBSR, there's only so much that you can teach. And you know the, the, the teachers out there, they're doing their best. They're constrained by time. They're constrained by the rate that people can learn. Also, how much time people have to practice. And implicit in virtually all mindfulness courses is Vedana. It's never named as such, but it's getting close to the kind of root of your thoughts and your feelings and your emotions. But there's a, a lovely moment uh, when the, the unconscious mind crystallizes into consciousness. And it's called Vedana or feeling tone. And it's where we categorize everything in a very broad way as either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And it actually tinges a whole experience of life. You know, it tinges what comes next. So you get this feeling tone, and then you then out of that arise thoughts and feelings and emotions. So they're sent on a trajectory with their root in this Vedana. Now, the mindfulness courses and therapy, they teach you to see your kind of stream of thoughts, for example. So wouldn't it be wonderful if you could go upstream to the moment just before they appear? And that would give you so much more control or rather insight into the way we are as, as people. You know, we could see the moment and hopefully have a, a more measure of control of how we react to our thoughts and feelings and emotions. And that's really what the course in, in Deeper Mindfulness does. It takes you just that little bit further upstream from what you would get in a normal mindfulness course. I was reflecting on this topic and anticipating and looking forward to uh, being with you. And so I, I want to kind of give two examples and yeah. see how you would, what you would make of them and how we could deconstruct my mind stream, as it were, in a productive way. That's the whole point. So here I am, I'm rolling along, and in my awareness, there's a foreground and a background. A lot of things are kind of happening relatively simultaneously. You know, as I'm getting ready, let's say, to go to work, or and I'm maybe thinking about several projects I've got running, several email kind of streams I'm you know, thinking about, in the background of all that is a kind of global mood, okay? In the foreground, as I think about several emails that interact and they all take time and I don't have time to do them all, then on the heels of that thought and observation that I don't have enough time to do all the things I kind of need to do is a, a sense of stress, pressure that has a, what I would call an unpleasant quality to it fairly minor. I could deconstruct that unpleasantness into different 
tones of unpleasantness, like a, you know, a food that's unpleasant or different aspects of the un- unpleasantness. So there I am, I'm feeling stressed, I'm kind of pressured. Alongside though, amidst that unpleasant feeling tone is the pleasant feeling tone of, or hedonic tone, as you know, of a kind of delighted anticipation of getting stuff done. So those two are alongside each other, all right? So bubbling up uh, into consciousness, are, that's occurring. And then on the heels of that, within a half second or a second, there's the metacognition. I'm noticing, there's meta-awareness. I'm now noticing that's the case. Okay, whoop, stop the movie right there. Yeah. Okay, you got it? So yeah. I've got these two hedonic tones, feeling tones in these ways. How can I practice with that that you would suggest? First off, it would be really useful if you could learn some of the, the basic meditations prior to that. Because if you're a novice, you're not. But if you were a novice, it's very, very difficult to not get wrapped up in your thought processes and your emotional turbulence. Yeah. You would have learned through meditation to see this moment of awareness as it crystallizes. So it's there's this very brief pause where the unconscious mind crystallizes into consciousness. So there's, then there's this very brief pause. And then there is this maelstrom that just appears and whips you off downstream, this whole stream of thoughts, feelings, and emotions. Now, if you learn to focus on that moment, you realize that it's very, very brief and it's categorized and it's an instinctive deep-seated categorization. It's not a judgment. It's a straightforward acceptance of something as pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And you feel it in your kind of mind and body and soul. And it's almost not possible to verbalize. You just feel it. You just know it. It's like if you smell a food that's gone off and you just instantly know it is unpleasant. So it's that very brief categorization. And if you learn to do that moment by moment by moment, you just see how your mind reacts to that moment and then goes off and creates all kinds of struggle and pain for yourself. So it's a way of forestalling your difficulties before they really pick up their skirts and run away with you. And that's the key really is it gives you that extra information and that extra moment of time where you can stop problems before they run away with you. I mean, consciousness is occurring moment by moment by moment. And the consciousness is, as we all know, it's constructed in complicated and still somewhat mysterious ways. It's So it's continuously emerging. I, I'm, just, I'm, I'm not sure I'd say it's emerging from unconsciousness. It's just simply emerging. Okay. So, yeah. And in the emerging now, people can be self-aware. Self-awareness is quite a familiar topic. Yeah. You know, at the level that I'm describing, I, I'm noticing that I'm feeling both pressured, worried, and irritated about needing to do more than I can do in a time allotted, while also kind of excited about getting stuff done. So right there in the flow, I'm aware of those, let's say, hedonic tones. And this is, I think, a pretty familiar experience for people. Yeah. As you know, you know, classic advice from all kinds of quarters. And Forrest, for me, is really expert about this, is to essentially be mindful of, you know, the pleasant or unpleasant, which then is both informative and motivating. So it can be useful that it's informative, 
and useful if it's motivating, problematic if it becomes alarmist or motivates us down painful paths, right? And so then we practice with the, the, the hedonic tone as it's arisen. So I wonder if you could just take me with that. You know, let's suppose people have that basic level of awareness that I'm describing in myself. What do you do next? Yeah, the, the problem you always have is when you are in a difficult situation, stressful, when you're stressed or anxious, it is extremely difficult in that moment to gain control of the situation. You have to forestall the situation. But what mindfulness and what feeling tone meditations give you is they hopefully stop it before it runs away with you. So in that situation you just described, if you have practice Vedana feeling tone meditations, you would hopefully be able to regain control of the situation by perhaps just closing your eyes for a moment and just feeling the feeling tones as they sweep through your body. Using conventional mindfulness, you would see that your thoughts were running away with you. Through Vedana, you would see, you'd feel the feeling tones flow through your body and then triggering those thoughts and your feelings and emotions. And you would see how you react to them so that each thought triggers another thought and another thought and another thought, and then they may be unpleasant or they might, they might be pleasant. It grounds you more um, forcefully, if that's the right word. It, it roots you firmer in your present moment experience, and that hopefully gives you moments more to regain control of the situation. But the, the thing it really, really gives you is that sliver of time to stop you getting into that difficult situation to start with. Mm. If you practice these meditations and you have a short temper, for example, you will find yourself getting less frequently involved in arguments or tangles with other people. You'll find, if you suffer from depression or anxiety, you'll find yourself feeling less anxious and depressed and you will hopefully notice it happening less often. An aspect of what you're pointing to here, Danny, is that there are different ways for us to interact with the flow of our experiences, is maybe one way to kind of say this back. And there are different points in the stream of our experience that we can A, become aware of it, and B, start to work with it in useful ways. One way to do this is at maybe the very tip of our experience, which is kind of what you're describing a little bit here. When it first begins to kind of emerge into our feeling, often our thoughts begin with some kind of a sensation. Often there's a sensation that's a precursor to the thoughts that we have that come after it. And if we can kind of be aware of the crystallization of that sensation, we can yeah. start to have more awareness of the thoughts that might come out of that feeling that we're having. That's one place that we can intervene. Another place that we can intervene is a little bit more what I think you're pointing to here, Dad, where there's a moment at which we're having all of these different sensations that are occurring to us that are all available to us. Because that's one of the crazy things that the brain is doing, right? The brain's taking an enormous amount of information and making choices about what it pushes up into what we might call like conscious awareness or the forefront of our conscious awareness, like what's being highlighted to us in our experience. And a lot of the time what we find is because of like the negativity bias and other things like that, what gets highlighted in our experience is the stuff that's unpleasant. Like you were saying that, like the, all the emails you have to answer, the stress and strain associated with that, so on and so on. But through practice, we become a little bit better 
exactly like you were saying, Dad, and noticing all the other things, the enjoyment opportunities, the ways that we're excited about what we might be doing in the future, all of that good stuff. So there are these different places where we can all feel these different aspects of our experience, and over time with practice, we can become more granular about the seeing of that and more deliberate in the working with that. I'm a little curious, actually, Dad, if you don't mind me asking, how would you answer your question, if that kind of makes sense? Yeah, that's great. So to be clear, a person's state of being, their consciousness, typically has many elements in it that are relatively stable, at least over a time scale of dozens of seconds, if not dozens of minutes in a row. You know, we're preoccupied with this or that. Maybe we walk away from an interaction with someone and we're kind of mulling it and we have mixed feelings about it. And, you know, it's fairly stable. Simultaneously, as Danny points out, and I used, as you know, Forrest, the phrase, the emergent edge of now, in which we're just getting really, really close in terms of nowness to the emergent edge of the processing stream, which probably lags by about a tenth of a second behind objective reality, as Danny knows, as perceptual processes then get constructed in the brain. So there's that emergent edge. So there's certainly that emergent edge. But meanwhile, there is a certain stability. Here I am, I'm feeling irritated, worried, and pressured about my stuff to do, but also kind of excited about getting certain things done. So that has a certain stability to it. And then the hedonic tone element of that, the pleasantness or unpleasantness or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, as I said, is both signal and motivator. It's informative. And the brain, as you know, evolved systems, particularly in the subcortex, that are very engaged with this generation of hedonic tones, feeling tones, vednas, and then initiating action through the amygdala and hippocampus and so forth based on those tones. So unpleasant tends to motivate us toward aversion and avoidance and fighting or fleeing. Pleasant tends to motivate us toward you know, in the extreme, well, approaching or in the extreme, greet. So we have, you know, that combination. Unpleasant feeling tone tends to motivate the poison of hatred, right? That's a problem. Pleasant feeling tone tends to motivate greed, problem. Two different forms of craving. So the practice is, again, Danny's a super duper expert on this. So I'm taking pages out of his book here, in effect, to say that uh, where practice a lot lives is being aware of this element of experience because it's a crucially uh, useful, uh, influential, it's a very influential signal to the brain and motivator. And if we're not attentive and mindful, as Danny teaches, to that signal and motivator, we then get swept away by it. And what, in effect, I would say a key takeaway here is to learn to use your hedonic tones. There is no end to hedonic tones. The Buddha, toward the end of his life, suffered great pain from a gastrointestinal ailment of some kind that eventually killed him, as best we know, right? Feeling tones are useful. There are rare beings who don't have pain reactions, and and they are extremely vulnerable to catastrophic injury because they won't pull their hand back from the hot stove. They don't notice it. So there's no end to feeling tones and hedonic tones, but there can be an improvement in our practicing with them. That's the basic idea. So what I would do is me, I notice I'm getting stressed. I'm pretty, you know, I've done it for a while. So yeah, within a few seconds, I'm noticing, oh, Rick, you're getting kind of cranky about emails. 
And then I engage it, you know, and in various ways. I kind of reassure myself. I draw an inner reassurance. That's good. I draw on a sense of perspective about it. It's not that important. Because like Danny, I have a mature practice that can look at the nature of experiences, not just the content of experiences. I start to deconstruct the unpleasantness of the experience itself and recognize its emptiness as phenomenology. It's it's there emptily. It's cloud-like rather than brick-like in the streaming of consciousness. And then I kind of lighten up, right? And maybe there's a takeaway like, oh, wow, I need to change an appointment later in the day so I actually have enough time. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe it's informative. It's telling me I, I need to cope with this in some way. And then I kind of roll along my day. So I'll leave it there. What do you make of all that? Well, it's great. I mean, I think it fits into the new interesting ideas behind you know how the brain makes sense of the world yeah and uh, what's very interesting about you know vedana feeling tone is it could in the long run shed light on the origins the true origins of kind of mental health problems the way we make sense of the world is wildly different to what most people expect people ex think including me until recently until we wrote this book that actually consciousness is formed from you know lots of sensory data coming in from all of our five senses going into our brain and then we produce you know a, an accurate picture of the world so it's almost like you know the eyes are almost like video cameras uh, they see the world and uh, you know that's that's what our vision is and that is almost certainly completely wrong in that we make sense of the world by predicting what we are about to see, for example, and hear and feel and smell and taste. It's called predictive processing in that actually we have a mental model of the world and that is what we experience is this mental model. We see the world through this model. We taste and smell all of our sensory sensations are actually used to error correct this model of the world. And am I making sense here or am I? Um... I mean, you're making perfect sense to me. I, I think you're probably also making sense to people who are listening. Another example of this that people might be familiar with, yeah. and you can try this trick yourself if you want, is that researchers will show people images and yeah. their brains will complete the image even if there is a part of the image that's missing. So an example of this is you'll be shown a circle, like a circle, a filled in circle. And people will look at them, they'll say, yep, that's a circle. And the researcher will ask them, is there anything wrong with the circle? And they'll look a little bit more closely and they'll realize that there's actually a hole in part of the circle that their brain simply did not notice before because it was kind of filling in the blanks for them. So we're doing this all the time, yeah. So Danny, so good. So in the ongoing constructing okay, of consciousness, there's this interactive process in which incoming sensory data and also arising thoughts, perspectives, mem memories from the past, somatic markers, blah, blah, blah. That um, kind of, we'll call it bottom-up input, is interacting with more top-down predictions. And the interaction of the two really comes together in the ongoing constructing of consciousness. Okay. What does the, how does it add value for people's daily life to relate the hedonic tone, the feeling tone of experience to that ongoing constructing process? In essence, if you're not really paying attention to the world, the model 
can just drift very slowly away from the real reality, as it were. Or in my case, quickly sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just what? We've what did you there. say to we've, me, we've Jan? All, we've all my wife. Life, yeah. <laughs> Wait, what? <Absolutely. laughs> okay. <laughs> we have, in, in practice, we have you know, multiple models running in parallel. Yeah. And what sensory data really does is it, it's error correcting. You know, we have this data comes in and we are constantly checking which of the parallel models is most accurate. And every now and again, we make a really, really obvious mistake. And that is actually a moment of pure awareness. And it might actually be one of the only few, only a handful of pure experiences of reality that day. We'll be right back to the show in just a minute, but first a word from this week's sponsors. Terms like the microbiome have gone mainstream, and it's great that there's more awareness about the importance of gut health and how we can support it by taking a good probiotic. Not all probiotics are created equal, and that's why I'm happy to be partnering with Seed. Seed is proud to be backed by science. Lots of science. They collaborated with leading scientists to create their DS01 Daily Symbiotic. It's a broad-spectrum, two-in-one probiotic and prebiotic that includes a proprietary formula of 24 clinically and scientifically studied strains. I take DS01 daily in the morning, and as a guy who has taken a lot of probiotics in his life, one of the things I really appreciated about it is it doesn't have that weird probiotic taste. Trust your gut with Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash beingwell and use code 25beingwell to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash beingwell, code 25beingwell. Work often means hours a day sitting in a chair, and research has suggested that prolonged sitting poses all kinds of health risks. One of the best purchases I've made over the last few years is getting a standing desk. It's absolutely transformed my workday, I totally love it, and I got mine from Uplift Desk. So when Uplift reached out recently to sponsor the podcast, I was totally thrilled. If you'd like to try one out, visit upliftdesk.com slash beingwell for 5% off your order. It's really a great product. I use the V2 two-leg configuration for my desk. That's where I work every day and record the podcast from, but they have so many different options for people. Over a million customers have chosen Uplift Desk for their innovative product designs, free 30-day returns, which includes free return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Their pricing is also really competitive, and if you're trying to save some money, you can just buy the legs alone. Go to upliftdesk.com slash beingwell for 5% off your order. That's up, L-I-F-T, desk.com slash beingwell. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. I'm always looking for ways to get more protein, and particularly more healthy protein, into my diet. And IQ Bar has been a really good fit for me. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. And today, our listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text being well to 64,000. One of the reasons that the bars have been so great for me is because they're entirely free from gluten, 
dairy, soy, and artificial sweeteners. And you can refuel smarter with IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack. That's seven IQ Bars, four IQ Mix Sticks, and four IQ Joe Sticks. And now, our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ Bar products, plus you can get free shipping as well. To get your 20% off, just text BEINGWELL to 64000. Get your discount. Text BEINGWELL to 64000. That's B-E-I-N-G-W-E-L-L to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell. So what is the special role? Why are you flagging the hedonic tone, the Vedna, the feeling tone? What is the special role of the feeling tone in the construction of we'll call it mistakes, unnecessary suffering. What is its special role? This is the brilliance of, of your whole thing that I'm really zeroing in on here. Yes, yes. It allows us to connect more closely to the real, real world. It allows us to correct the model, you know, bring the model closer to your reality rather than being approximately correct, you know, close enough for us to get through the day. It actually corrects the model. And most of the time, a lot of our, for example, thoughts and emotions, because they're generated internally by the model, it drifts away from reality. And if we root it more firmly in reality, most of the time that means we are going to be less anxious and stressed and depressed. I mean, your own work, Rick, about, you know, is having Teflon for good experiences and, you know, negative experiences, we feel more keenly. I think you say five to one, isn't it? That, um, There's a lot of research kind of ish that negative experiences tend to have a, they're less frequent in most people's lives, except they have more potency. I mean, what I'm hearing is that the hedonic tone, it, it has a lot of weight. It casts mm. a long shadow. It really shades our experience. So if, if, for example, an experience occurs and particularly negative hedonic tones, we feel sad, we feel glum, we feel anxious. And if it just sits there in our mind, then we start to believe it. As you put it, we start to drift from actual reality in that we don't need to be that worried about something, let's say, and or it's a passing small thing. We don't need to stay irritated for the rest of the morning. That's what you're saying. And also, a fair amount of the construction of the hedonic tone in a moment is based on past learning, habit formation. And so it's, 
it's over the top, right? It's it's exaggerated, it's extreme, it's turbocharged by our childhood trauma material, et cetera, et cetera. So it it's a very consequential element in the streaming of consciousness to pay a lot of attention to because it has a lot of influence. That's what I'm really hearing you highlight here. Yes, that's right. It short circuits the process, you know, instead of, you know, one thought triggering the next and the next and the next and this ever increasing, you know, this downward spiral, it, uh, it roots you more effectively than traditional mindfulness. You know, it grounds your model more effectively than traditional mindfulness. Oh, it's because it's super visceral. I mean, the generator yeah, of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Vedna is two, three hundred million years old, you know, absolutely. in terms of the evolution structurally. The brain is not even older. I mean, probably the one of the absolutely first, you know, signals in the nervous system was was pain, was unpleasant, you know, at the level of the ancient jellyfish in the sea. You know, swim away from that, you know, get out of here. It's really primal. Yeah. I mean, that's what's lovely about it is there is this deep primal feeling. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, the three feeling tones, and they have their roots in the most primitive of all life. And we as humans, you know, courtesy of our extra few hundred million years of evolution, we have built on top of that all of these thoughts and feelings and emotions Mm -hmm. and all of the baggage that comes with them. And they all serve very important survival purposes. But sometimes, especially in the modern world, we need to just take a step back and just ground ourselves in those most basic of all feeling tones of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral. And when we do that, it just forestalls, it just short circuits an awful lot of the problems we create for ourselves. Because we're not layering on those, as Rick says all the time on the podcast, those second darts where we're taking whatever the flow of experience is, the first start of our experience, and then adding some complexity or some difficulty or some bonus suffering, if you want to kind of put it that way, on top of them. Yeah. I think there are a lot of great insights from this, Danny, but a few that I just want to pull out really specifically to people that they're probably already thinking to themselves, but if you're not, just to highlight here. First, really importantly, we're making assumptions all the time, and those assumptions may or may not be accurate. That's the nature of an assumption. And the brain is really, really good at getting us to buy into the assumptions that we're making about our experiences. This is incredibly energy efficient. It's typically really good for survival. It's why we're sitting here today, but it's not always so great when it comes to either A, accuracy, or B, quality of life. Because the brain's job is to keep you alive, not to keep you happy. And there's often a big gap between being alive and being happy in terms of its priority stack. So we can just get a little bit more attentive to the the realness, the moment-to-moment truth of our experience, as opposed to getting so wrapped up in that assuming process that the brain is constantly doing. So that's one really important insight here. Another really important insight, I think, in this is that feelings just are. And a lot of our problems that come from feelings are when we start layering in all of this other content that you're really talking about. And so one thing that I want to highlight in the book, I think that it's in week four of the the course structure that you lay out. There's this very, very simple practice of just being with a sensation and just being able to see a sensation and say to yourself, this sensation is unpleasant and it's okay not to like it if something unpleasant is happening. Or 
this sensation is pleasant and it's okay to like it. You know, if you want to really go down the path of practice, maybe it's something like this sensation is pleasant and I don't have to get wrapped up in it or something like that. But just that being with and feeling something for what it is, often, at least for me, is enormously effective in starting to unwrap myself from whatever other content is kind of appearing. Because a lot of the time, particularly with unpleasant sensations, we really go down the rabbit hole of thinking about them, pulling them apart, chewing on them, asking ourselves, like, is it okay for me to be feeling bad about this thing? A lot of shame and self-criticism can get wrapped up in it. And just that acknowledging, like, this doesn't feel great, and that's okay, can just be enormously effective and cathartic for people. And I'm wondering what you what you've seen about that with the program. Yeah, I mean, that is you know, absolutely central to the program of just the acceptance that a situation or a feeling. But it's slightly more subtle than that because when I first came across these ideas, you know, I thought, well, you know, why should you accept the unacceptable? You know, there's lots of terrible things that go on in the world from time to time. You know, bad things happen to us. Why should you accept them? But then the most subtle aspect of this is you're not accepting the situation that, or sorry, that what caused the situation. You're not saying it's okay that that person lost their temper with me and shouted at me. You're saying it's okay how you feel about it. So there's a subtle difference. Many people, certainly I do, I just rebel against this idea of just accepting a bad situation or accepting the cause of a bad situation. But sometimes you just have to accept that a situation is bad. You know, somebody has treated you badly. The latter one is very therapeutic, is very settling. You know, you just accept, yeah, this is how I feel. It's unpleasant. And then as soon as you do that, the sting is taken away from the emotion. Yeah, I've got a I've got a question about this, if you don't mind. And I'm I'm kind of interested in Rick's take on it. Because what you're you're highlighting this distinction, Danny, we're accepting the feeling, not the situation, because this is maybe the single most common objection that people hear who start trying to teach this material to people. That's why you're bringing particular attention to it. Yes. And we hear it on the podcast too. One of the most common questions or comments, emails that we get is about some version of like, oh, you tell me to practice with acceptance. Are you telling me that I should just accept the the poor treatment that somebody else is like layering on me? It's no, that's that's not what we're saying. We're making the same distinction you are. You're accepting a feeling, not a situation. But a part of me kind of wonders like this. I don't I don't know if I'm getting excessively psychoanalytic or something here, Dad. So like rein me in here. But do you think that that complaint, that part of the the source of that objection that people have is just an attempt to kind of cover an unwillingness to like feel the feeling or accept the sensation? Or do you think that over and over and over again, people are actually saying, no, you're telling me I should accept this like negative situation. Does that make sense? Does my, is my question clear? If I follow you right, it's super clear and central. And I bet Danny as a teacher has heard it a lot. In other words, to use a clear example, I was going to, I told you, Danny, I had two examples for me as a guinea pig. This would be my second one in which there is in me a background that I can be aware of, particularly if I attend to it, but it kind of is continually, relatively in the background of an uneasiness about the state of my country, America, including in this major election year. So there's uneasiness. A person might say, 
that uneasiness is very important to be aware of as a signal and a motivator. It's two functions, including motivating a person to political action aimed at the things that are making you uneasy. So don't do the spiritual bypass of meditating that uneasiness away. You ought to be uneasy. You ought to actually be panicked <laughs> on the state of democracy <laughs> in your country. Get off your butt, blah, 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 blah. You know, I've definitely had that yeah. come at me, yeah. of course. It's, and it's understandable. And I think, yeah. you know, going all the way back to the teachings of the Buddha and many other wise beings since, including you, Dr. Penman, it's we can be aware of the, the hedonic tones and other constituents of our consciousness. We can be aware of it. We can practice with it while simultaneously engaging in effective action in the world. And in fact, doing those things that help, that, that tend to promote well-being inside us actually make us more resilient in dealing with the challenges of life and help us sustain the marathon of, let's say, engaged constructive action to make a better world. So it's both and, if I follow that for us. That's, that's how I would understand that. Is that on point to your question? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that part of what I'm wondering is, do people actually not understand this distinction or are they yes. motivated to not understand this distinction? <laughs> yes. and, and I suppose if they, yeah, maybe the answer is yes, yes to some, both. Okay, so go some, ahead, Danny. Get some are and some are. Dan, yeah, okay. <laughs> you have to see it as strategic acceptance so that you can then move forward. You know, uh, one example I always use is the example, uh, we're probably talking to a great many pacifists here, but imagine you're a general on a battlefield, right? Things are going terribly wrong for you. Now, there's a number of uh, solutions or a number of things you can do here. One is absolute denial that you're losing the battle, or you can accept the situation and try and make the best of it, you know, try and limit the losses. It's strategically accepting the situation so that you can then take wise and considered action. Just from what you're saying here, Danny, I, I was just reflecting on some texts, actually, from the establishments of mindfulness, foundations of mindfulness, suttas that have survived down 2,500 or so years, and I'll kind of share in a second, but they're very, uh, in them, you'll just see the ways in which the feeling tone, the hedonic tone, is really informative. And in one aspect of it that I think is really important for people is to lean in to positive feedback, positive information. And from the standpoint of information, negative feedback is not as informative as positive feedback. Negative feedback just tells you you missed the bullseye. Positive feedback tells you you're getting closer, you actually hit it. And so to lean into ways of being that, you know, of centeredness and wholesomeness and self-worth and self-compassion and heartfeltness for others, but, uh, you know, those all are pleasant. They're supposed to be pleasant. They feel good because they are good for you and other people. And so leaning into the signal of, yeah, closer, closer, warmer, warmer, that's really, really useful, right? And so feeling tones are not the problem. They're actually incredibly useful. What happened, the problem is that they're extremely salient in the stream of consciousness and, and as ancient motivators. And so they have a lot of power. And your work to me is really foregrounding their power, including in a larger context of the mindfulness movement generally, which just kind of sits in open awareness as if all the flotsam and jetsam in the stream of consciousness have equal consequence. But in fact, a major 
category or class of the boots and you know stuff floating around that stream really, really matters for you. So it's worth being particularly mindful of and then particularly skillful in terms of practicing with the hedonic tones of experience. I, I remember when I embarked on this practice, however many years ago, and it seemed they were quite subtle, you know, uh, at first. But within a few sessions, I really felt them, you know, and people feel them. Uh, you know, some people feel them more mentally. I personally, I feel them physically, and I yeah. feel it right across my abdomen. Some people feel them like really powerful sensations in their neck or their throat or their hands. You know, they their location in the mind or the body or the spirit is unique to pretty much everybody. You know, people feel them in different places, but they are always, once you've gone through the process of noticing them a couple of times, you never miss them again. Are there particular ways that you teach people to become attentive to those feeling tones? One of the the common questions that we get or just things people say on various clips of ours that we post to social media is, this all sounds really great, but I have a really hard time with those kinds of interoceptive practices that often precede the ability to, to interact with some aspect of our, our experience. So I'm wondering how you go about teaching that in the course. That is most definitely true. You know, people do vary enormously. I mean, the first two weeks of the program, we're actually teaching people to, to use, for example, it's a body scan. The first week is essentially a body scan. We ask people to really pay attention to the sensations in their body. And traditionally, that was the breath. But we take people on a journey really throughout their whole body to find a really suitable anchor for them that's more personal for them. And then in week two, we ask people to, when they realize their mind has run away yet again, instead of just immediately bringing their awareness back to the anchor in the body, say their breath or their feet, we say, just pause for a moment. You know, instead of chasing back to the anchor as if you feel like you've done something wrong, just, just stay with that momentary pause for a moment. And those two things actually t lay the foundations for you to start noticing uh, these feeling tones. You know, they, they are the foundations. And then in week three, we move into the various techniques to help people discover these feeling tones. And often, quite quickly, people uh, really notice them. This might be distinct from the kind of mindfulness, the kind of witnessing, in effect, that you're talking about, Danny. And I'm thinking of many very functional ways understood both in clinical psychology and in kind of ordinary living in which we engage our minds deliberately to generate certain particular hedonic tones, feeling tones in the present in terms of activities we're doing. I'll give you an example. And then I, I want to ask you, Forrest, about this. Uh, so, for example, we're doing an activity and maybe we're starting to feel kind of anxious about it. And then we help ourselves feel more kind of joyful about it, like we're going to give it a whirl, right? So we're, we're deliberately nudging and calling forth pleasant feeling tones related to the current activity, say, or maybe when we anticipate something in the future, we want to motivate ourselves to exercise or to speak from the heart in a vulnerable way, and it's kind of scary. So Forrest, can you give us an example of ways in which you deliberately encourage a positive uh, feeling tone in your own mind 
associated with something, in, such as something you're trying to encourage yourself toward or motivate yourself toward. I think that this enjoying aspect is really central, and it's really mm. central for the development of essentially any behavior that we want to build in life. If you think about habit formation, one of the mistakes that people tend to make is they try to replace enjoyable activities with ones that they just don't find that enjoyable, or ones where they haven't found aspects of the activity to start enjoying. And I think that this can kind of, there, there are two tracks that people can go down with this one. Kind of returning to what you said at the very, very beginning, Dad, about, you know, I've got this concern about emails or I've got this concern about other tasks that I have to do. There are aspects of that that are more painful and aspects of it that are more enjoyable. A lot of the time we get captured, as you guys know super well, by the negative aspects of our experiences. Those become very salient to us. Step one of it is really just noticing the whole, the whole, mosaic. Being able to take a step back and seeing the enjoyable aspects alongside the aspects that are more uncomfortable for us. Uh, that can already, I think, for a lot of people, be really helpful. I, I went to the gym the other day for the first time in about a week and a half. Uh, there was some suffering there, but I was able to ground that suffering in the other things about the experience that I was enjoying, and therefore it naturally kind of faded out a little bit. Then I think there are a lot of actually very useful somatic practices for people that have to do with enjoying more. And the body-based stuff sometimes gets left out in the broader cognitive psychology conversation. Somatics is kind of a new discipline in cognitive psychology. It's a little bit less included. I think that physical sensations are kind of weirdly underrated sometimes when we start talking about the mind. But there's such a quick way in to really reinforcing the positive aspects of what we want to build. So to use an example here, if I feel good about something, there's almost always a feeling tone that arises physically inside of my body, kind of like you were saying earlier, Danny. For me, it's often in my chest space. Sometimes it's in my stomach space. If you focus on the sensation and just kind of sit with it for a second or two or three, very basic instruction there, often it gets bigger. And you can just kind of take a moment to go, wow, this feels really good. And I don't know what you think about this, Rick, as a clinical psychologist, but just in my own experience, people are often kind of prudish and tend to feel a lot of shame around just pleasant body sensations. They don't want to really digest it for whatever reason. And that's something that I've seen be like a real limitation to people around enjoying their experience a little bit more, just like a, a personal prudishness about those kinds of enjoyable sensations. I don't know what you've seen there. I think that traditional mindfulness approaches, which I'm quite steeped in and so forth, they're really about just awareness. Yeah. Right? I think that's great. But I think that as many have taught, Jack Cornfield, for example, talking about in Path with Heart, uh, we've learned a few things over the last 2,500 years about how to more actively practice with the mind. And, and you see for some of those forms of more active practice, like in Tibetan Buddhism with Tonglen practice and things like that. And so we clearly can actively practice, not only be aware. You have to be aware to practice, but we can actively yeah. engage our hedonic tones in the present. And we can also deliberately kind of train our brains to anticipate certain pleasant hedonic tones to motivate us toward doing various things in various ways. And I, you gave an example of that and talked us through that. And I think that's kind of a point to make here. Building on 
on awareness of them, we can actually actively practice with them. And in fact, we can future program ourselves in terms of the anticipatory Vedana. Many of the Vedanas are anticipatory. It's about anticipating whether we'll like it or not like it, you know, pleasant or unpleasant. And we can nudge ourselves in that direction, which is, as you point out for us, is kind of at the heart of a lot of skillful habit formation. Yeah, yeah. How to Having something to look forward to is just an underrated life resource, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And in, this, in the yeah. times in my life where I felt myself really in a rut or stuck or just like the bloom was kind of off the rose, it, it was mostly because I just felt like I didn't really have something to look forward to. Yeah, which goes to Danny's comments about the brain as a predictor. Yeah, <laughs> the the predictions are gloom and rain. And uh. you know, <laughs> we were laughing at the beginning about before we started recording that you and I are experiencing here in California a London morning, <laughs> you know, misty, cold, and dreary. You know, <laughs> we don't want those kind of predictions too much. Because I was experiencing for you guys, I was, I was, I was experiencing looking out of your eyes this. Beautiful sun dappled landscape, you know. <laughs> it's often the case, often but not always, for sure. For sure. Is there anything as we get to the end here, Danny, that that you just really want to highlight to people or reinforce or you feel like we haven't mentioned something that's been kind of in the back of your brain going, oh, we should really fill in the blank? Yeah, I mean, I think we both live in a um in a, such a repressed society. You know, we seem to have mm. all this liberty. The one liberty we don't have is to enjoy life. We don't allow ourselves to enjoy life. And, you know, mindfulness is great at liberating that aspect of ourselves, but Vedana feeling tones, they they take us so much closer to that kind of core aspect of our existence. You know, you know, life is, you know, composed of beautiful ups and unfortunate downs, but we only ever we just fear the downs to such a degree that we are not capable. We do not allow ourselves to enjoy the good aspects. You know, there's a beautiful world out there and we just need to open our eyes and feel it and connect with it. And then, you know, we will all live far happier, less anxious and less stressful lives when we do so. And that's a beautiful place to end our conversation today. So thanks again, Danny, so much for joining us and for having this conversation with us. That's great. Hopefully I, uh, yeah, I, it's it's funny. I always try to imagine the audience and they're thinking, is this too complicated? Is this too subtle? Is this? I think they're pretty used to it with us. I think I, okay. I think that we were right in our wheelhouse here, Danny, and, and you, were, you were fantastic. So again, thanks so much for doing this with us today. One of the things that I would have been neat to have gotten into, and I'll just make the point kind of quickly here because we're still being recorded, I think. Yeah, keep it rolling. So one of the things I thought, Danny, was really interesting in your book was this focus about living extremely close to the front end of the processing stream, really close to the emergence of the present moment in consciousness, which, as you know, when it first emerges, is heavily oriented toward what the Buddha talked about in terms of the aggregates, the bare apprehension of sensory data, a minimal categorization of it as a, you know, and a hedonic tone and to live really close there. And I tended to focus in this conversation mainly on upstream when the so-called volitional formations get in the mix, thoughts, feelings, body, blah, like feeling stressed about my emails that has some persistence, some stability in my 
it's an eddy in the stream of my consciousness that has some persistence. Okay, but you have focused us a lot in your work on that emergent edge. And as we get really, really close to that emergent edge, we start moving beyond pleasure and pain. We start increasingly being so present that we're with emergence even before the feeling tone has a chance to come into the space. So we're left with neither pleasant nor unpleasant, and which is a really interesting place. I'm reading a lot of Taoism these days and Zen stuff, and they use language like make all things equal. Nothing's better, nothing's worse, beyond pleasure and pain. Beyond, as Rumi puts it, beyond right and wrong. You're in that space, which is really quite profound, which then goes to a comment from Christina Feldman to me that the neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, is a gateway to the eventless. It's a gateway to unconditionality, as she talked about. So that's kind of a micro riff that's an appreciative riff related to your work and uh, a real opportunity for people at the kind of upper edge of their practice here. They're, They're so in the present, even before pleasant and unpleasant, they start having access to that which is unconditioned, always just prior to the emergence of conditioned experience, grounded in conditioned reality. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's it all goes back to the idea of you know the two arrows that you you discuss yeah. quite a lot that we create so much trouble for ourselves by just layering and layering and layering those thoughts uh, on top of thoughts upon top of thoughts, and actually. Often the most important thing you can do is just step back and go right to that core moment. And if you can do that, you know, you do. Pain is still often felt as pain, but it's less personal. We had a great time today talking with Dr. Danny Penman, who wrote Deeper Mindfulness with Dr. Mark Williams. And we focused our conversation on one aspect of our experience, which in traditional Buddhist circles is known as Vedana. And this is the feeling tone of our experience, also known as hedonic tone in psychology. And Vedana is kind of this background color that paints the wallpaper of our lives. When we see something or taste something or hear something, a kind of feeling emerges inside of us. And we can typically separate this feeling into three aspects— more pleasant or enjoyable sensations, more unpleasant or unenjoyable situations, and then all of the neutral stuff, which is an awful lot of our experience. Now, in Buddhist practice, Vedana is known as one of the four foundations of mindfulness, one of these four things that we can really, really be aware of in different kinds of ways. And one of the reasons that it's focused on is because that feeling tone is such an important linchpin for the behavior of our thoughts and feelings and just everything that comes after it. We tend to grasp at and cling to and become really concerned about pleasant sensations vanishing. When unpleasant tones come up for us, we tend to really avoid them. We push them away. We become fearful of them in different ways. And then when neutral sensations come up, we tend to be a little disinterested in them. We get bored, we get distracted, and we look for something new to focus on. This is an automatic process that happens in our minds, happens just in our experience of the world. But it comes with a lot of consequences, particularly if we're not aware of it and we're not directed in our relationship with it. 
Your brain is processing an enormous amount of information at all times. And one of the things that it's doing is it's making really deliberate choices. And deliberate might not be quite the right word here because the mind's not necessarily agentic in this. It's just a thing that happens, but okay, go with me here. The mind's making choices about what to push up into the foreground of our awareness and what to leave in the background of our awareness. It's also making a lot of assumptions about the world around us. We talked about predictive processing during this conversation, where the mind has all of these different models through which it views the world, and it funnels our present moment experience through our personal history, all of the things that we've experienced about the world in the past. And so what this means is that there's actually a fair amount of drift between our interpretation or our seeing of something and the way that it actually is, because the way that we experience it is so colored by everything else that has happened to us in the past. One of the ways that we can correct this is by really focusing on Vedana, on the feeling tone of the experience that is arising for us in the moment, as opposed to our assumptions about what that feeling tone is or what that feeling tone should be maybe for somebody based on all of that past experience, on the models that we have about the world, and just frankly the ways that we've gotten used to interacting with it. And because negative sensation, unpleasant Vedana, is such a important thing for the mind to focus on for evolutionary purposes, it's the unpleasant experiences of life that are really, really, really important to avoid if our pure goal here is to pass on gene copies, the mind tends to really surface those aspects into our present moment awareness. And this is known as the negativity bias, which we talk about on the podcast all the time. And an aspect of mindfulness practice that can be incredibly powerful for people is what Danny and Mark focus on in their book, Deeper Mindfulness, being aware of this feeling tone right at the tip of the spear, right at the beginning of our experience, just as it's starting to kind of coalesce in our mind. To be able to look at that feeling tone deliberately, separate it out into different parts, see all of those different parts as they are, and just let them be. Just letting them be as tones, as sensations, without adding on this extra layer of all of our assumptions about them, all of our thoughts and feelings, all of our past experiences, all of that mental gunk that tends to lead to what we call second darts in Buddhist practice. And this is the suffering that we add to the uh, natural pains of life. And another place where this can really help us is when it comes to making predictions about the future. Vedana has a huge part of it, which is about our relationship not so much with the present moment, but with our assumptions or ideas about what future moments will hold. And again, the brain tends to put a lot of priority on negative experiences and negative predictions about the future, because it thinks that those negative predictions will keep you more safe. If you're anxious about the future, if you're scared about what tomorrow holds, you will behave uh, more carefully, which might keep you alive longer to, again, pass on gene copies that pass on gene copies. This is great for survival. It's absolute crap when it comes to quality of life. And one of the, the most powerful benefits of these kinds of meditative practices is they help us generate more accurate, and therefore for most people most of the time, more positive predictions about the future. 
They help us lean into more enjoyable sensations. And those more enjoyable sensations are often at the very root of developing uh, the habits that we want to build in our life, the practices that we care about, leaning into the things that we really love and enjoy as opposed to the things that we just want to get away from. And they also help us see sensations as just sensations without all of this other stuff added onto it. One of the simplest and also most important and most powerful, at least in my experience, parts of the program comes in week four, when people are taught how to be with a feeling without judging that feeling. When they have an unpleasant sensation, they recognize that unpleasant hedonic tone, they're just able to be with it and say something along the lines of, this sensation is unpleasant. It's okay not to like it. They're validating their experience, they're being with the feeling, and they're not adding all of those second darts on top of it. And this, for me, just speaking personally, is so helpful for untangling for something that I've just been in a snarl about recently, like a situation in a friend group where you're just going around and around the bushes, trying to think your way through what some person did or what some person said. And instead, you can just get down to the core and say, wow, this doesn't feel great, and it's okay to not feel great about it. From there, of course, you might have whatever practical problems you have, right? You might still have to deal with whatever you got to deal with in the external world. But you can generally do it from such a more effective and grounded place once you're able to drop into that sensation. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Danny. I thought that he was great. It is a wonderful book. Again, the title of the book is Deeper Mindfulness, and I've included a link to it in the About section for today's podcast episode. As a reminder, you can find me on Substack. I've included a link to that down below as well. And if you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple of dollars a month, you can support the show and receive bonuses like ad-free versions of the episodes and transcripts of everything that we create. Until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.